I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. We begin with not so fast. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester just dashing expectations of a Powell pivot in the months ahead, which he said last night that's giving investors pause this morning. And firing back and lashing out. Former President Donald Trump having his say in a primetime address after being arraigned in a New York City courtroom yesterday. We are live in Washington with the highlights. And changing tact. Johnson & Johnson laying out a new strategy to put its talcum powder legal troubles officially in the past. That stock is popping this morning. Plus, Taiwan's president defying China. She's set to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy later today. We have the reaction from Beijing ahead. And then later on in the show, UBS welcomes its, its new CEO into the fold today. Shareholders get their first say in the bank's deal to buy Credit Suisse. We're live in Switzerland with much more on that story. It is Wednesday, April the 5th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's kick off this hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. After a mostly lower session for stocks yesterday, right now we're seeing a fractionally lower session right now. All three indices down very slightly in the red at this hour. We're also checking the bond market. Now, this is interesting. We are seeing some movement in the bond market. We're seeing the benchmark 10-year right now coming at 3.36. That's about 10 basis points lower than it started the week. The two-year note, now the yield there, below 4%. That's really notable. We're seeing this move in bond yields kind of responding to uh, the JOLTS report showing under 10 million openings. That's something to continue to watch this morning. We're also watching energy. Oil hovering near its highest level since January. This morning, we're seeing oil fractionally in the red, but still WTI crude above 80 bucks a barrel. Brent crude at just about 85 a barrel. And speaking of oil, later this hour, we will speak exclusively with one U.S. crude producer on the recent price spike and OPEC's decision to slash its output. We'll talk about how it's impacting its business and the U.S. energy patch as a whole. And of course, we're also watching what we like to call the crypto complex this morning. Looking at Bitcoin, of course, we're seeing Bitcoin above that 28,000 mark right now, up almost a percent and a half this morning. Ether up two and almost a half percent, um, moving higher this morning when it comes to crypto. All right, looking around the world this morning as well. Markets in Hong Kong and China closed for a national holiday. A mixed picture elsewhere with Japan falling more than 1%. Europe's trading day just getting underway. A bit of a mixed picture there as well. We're seeing uh, the FTSE, the best performer, just up fractionally, however, the CAC down a third of a percent. Let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Our Savannah Hanau is here with those. Good morning, Savannah. Hey, Frank. Good Wednesday morning to you. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says the Fed likely has more rate hikes ahead amid signs of the recent banking crisis has been contained. Speaking in New York last night, Mester says inflation remains too high and stubborn, and it could take until 2025 to get it down to the Fed's 2% target. She sees monetary policy moving further into restrictive territory this year, with the Fed's fund rate topping 5%. Precisely how much higher the Fed funds rate will need to go from here and for how long policy will need to remain restrictive will depend on how much inflation and inflation expectations are moving down. And that will depend on how much demand is slowing, supply challenges are being resolved, and price pressures are easing. And Mester, who does not have a vote on the FOMC this year, adds the economy is doing well, even with higher rates, and notes consumer spending is holding up with strong household balance sheets and income growth. 
Hedge fund manager Farallon Capital Management reportedly plans to launch a proxy battle at cancer drug maker Exelixis. That's according to The Wall Street Journal. Farallon, which owns more than 7% of the company, is nominating three directors to the company's board and is expressing concerns over what it calls undisciplined research and development spending and insufficient shareholder returns. Johnson & Johnson proposing to pay nearly $9 billion to settle claims its talk products caused cancer, along with a settlement, which still needs court approval. J&J subsidiary LTL Management is also refiling for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection after its first attempt failed. And Frank, LTL is that company that Johnson & Johnson uh, spun off in 2018 in an effort to shield itself from losses and litigation related to those talk products. Much more on that uh, talk settlement coming up later on the show. Silvana, thank you very much. We'll yeah. see you later on the show as well. All right, time now to turn our attention back overseas in UBS this hour, holding its first shareholder meeting since agreeing to buy its failed rival, Credit Suisse, which held its final meeting with some very frustrated shareholders just yesterday. Our Jemana Brissetti joins us now from Basel, Switzerland, with much more on this story. Jemana. Morning, Frank. Well, there really is a very different atmosphere for today's AGM versus what we witnessed with Credit Suisse yesterday. Remember, yesterday we were talking about the huge throngs of shareholders who showed up, who were angry, they were frustrated. They saw it as an opportunity to vent their frustration and ask questions to Credit Suisse management as to what led to the demise of that bank and the ultimate takeover by its rival UBS. Today, we're in Basel for the UBS AGM. Very different sentiments. Now, the stock has performed actually quite well since the takeover deal was announced, up about 10 percentage points. So many of these shareholders are showing up thinking that perhaps this is the start of something new, the birth of a new unit. Lots of questions about what that unit is going to look like, which is why everyone tuned in to listen to what the chairman, Colin Kelleher, had to say at the start of the AGM, where he spelled out his view for how he sees the integration going. And he said very, very clearly that the model for UBS at the integrated units of UBS is going to be very similar to what they're doing already and that the wealth management units, the private banking units are going to be right at the center of this combined entity. Investment banking will play less of a role and they will be looking to cut down that part of the business. So very consistent with the messaging there. He said they are laser focused right now on the execution. They're laser focused on, on delivering, on integrating and making it as smooth as possible. And that is going to be the priority. And he also said that that was the reason why they decided a week ago to bring back the former uh, UBS CEO, Sergio Amati. He had overseen the restructuring of UBS throughout the years of 2011-2020. In uh, the chairman's eyes, he is the right man to deliver on this new chapter for UBS as well. So, Jemana, I've seen a lot of reports about this. A lot of people are calling this a shotgun merger. Did you get a chance to speak to any shareholders today and get their mood and their sentiment about all this? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's similar to what I was saying before and that they are uh, very anticipating or, or excited to see uh, what this deal is going to mean for them. In the short term, there is some concern about some of the legal obstacles that we highlighted yesterday. A few class action lawsuits being put forward by some of the shareholders. Also, Swiss prosecutors are investigating the deal as well and the circumstances of which the takeover happened a couple of weeks ago. But once that put to rest, then the focus is going to be on the actual business integration. And eventually, uh, shareholders are optimistic that this will be quite revenue generative for the combined entity in the future. But it's going to take time. Yeah, it's only going to take time. UBS shares down on the pre-market here in the U.S. 
Our Germana Brissetti live in Basel, Switzerland. Germana, thank you very much. Turning now to developing story and former President Donald Trump back in Florida this morning after pleading not guilty to 34 felony counts in a New York court yesterday. Trump speaking to his supporters last night just after landing outside of Mar-a-Lago. NBC's Bree Jackson joins us now from Washington. Bree, uh, a very spirited rally there. Yeah, good morning, Frank. It was a spirited rally, but the actual court hearing lasted less than an hour. And photos taken inside the courtroom, uh, they appear to be showing uh, former President Trump appearing to be stoic. But later on, when he made those public remarks, that's when he lashed out. His unprecedented arraignment, former President Trump addressed supporters at his Mar-a-Lago estate, combative and downplaying the criminal charges against him. Everybody said this is not really an indictment. There's nothing here. He also railed against prosecutors. The criminal is the district attorney. The Manhattan DA's office hit Mr. Trump with 34 felony charges related to hush money payments surrounding the 2016 election. To make these payments... They set up shell companies and they made yet more false statements. Prosecutors laid out a broader picture during Tuesday's arraignment and what they called an unlawful plan to suppress negative information that could have affected Mr. Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Trump pleaded not guilty and his legal team claimed their client is the victim. While everyone is not above the law, no one's below it either. And if this man's name was not Donald J. Trump, there is no scenario we'd all be here. Protesters from both sides gathered outside the courthouse. I am more standing for democracy than against Trump. This is a, a frame-up job. Tuesday's criminal charges stem from just one legal matter. Trump could face more legal trouble from investigations into the storage of classified documents at his home, efforts to overturn 2020 presidential election results, and his role in the January 6th attack. And former President Trump's criminal case is scheduled for December 4th. It is expected to go to trial early next year, just weeks before the first Republican presidential primary elections. Frank? You know, Brad, it's really interesting. So we know the dates of his next court cases, but do we have any sense of what the next steps are? Are his attorneys going to meet with prosecutors? Is there any sense that he might look for a plea deal or will he actually take this all the way to trial? Well, Frank, Trump's defense team says that it plans to file a motion to dismiss this case. It will have 45 days to do so. Meanwhile, for the prosecution, in the next two weeks, they have to hand over all the evidence that they've gathered in this case. So Trump's legal team, they say they're not looking for a plea deal. They're looking to fight this case. All right, a historic court appearance and certainly a developing story, something we'll watch. Bree Jackson, live in Washington, D.C., thank you very much. All right, we come back here on Worldwide Exchange. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy set to meet with Taiwan's president later today. A one-on-one China is not too happy about. We get the reaction from Beijing ahead. And sticking with China, French President Emmanuel Macron set to meet with President Xi Jinping during his three-day visit to China as he attempts to maintain his role as Ukraine mediator. Plus, OPEC surprise output cut putting U.S. producers in a bit of a tight spot. We speak with one driller on the fallout for his business and his peers. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. U.S. markets coming under pressure yesterday with the Dow and the S&P 500 snapping a four-day winning streak as broader economic concerns weighed on stocks and the new signs that the Fed's effort to cool the labor market may be working. 
As we just heard, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says despite some small inroads, there's still more work to do to lower inflation. Former Morgan Stanley Wealth Management Chairman Gary Kaminsky telling CNBC he thinks because they got it wrong on transitory inflation and the Fed may be forced to hike higher, uh, higher than more than uh, the many are expecting. We're raising rates. The Fed is going to continue to raise rates. And now is a time not to speculate in equities, but to make certain that you know what you own. The markets have always operated in cycles. I've seen it for close to 40 years now. That's where we are. I do not believe they've peaked. I think I think the Fed is determined to overshoot this cycle. And I would not be surprised personally to see a six percent terminal rate. All right, let's talk much more about this now with Kalei Kadena Pua, CEO and vice chairman of Kadena and Company. Great to have you here as always. Great to see you, Frank. Thanks for having us. All right. So give us a sense of just what you're thinking about everything we're seeing. Looking right now, we're seeing futures down this morning, the S&P and the Nasdaq, both negative for the start of this quarter. Obviously, early days, just a couple of days in. What do you think is causing this shift in sentiment? And what are you telling your clients about portfolios right now? Great questions. I, you know, above above everything, it's the uncertainties in the market continue to rise. Um, you know, just with the recent announcement from OPEC, there is additional inflationary pressures. We happen to somewhat believe, uh, agree with what Gary, what his position on that the Fed may have some additional work to do. While we're seeing the inflationary trends trend lower, they're still above the Federal Reserve's target rate of 2%. So when you look at core PCE, still in the 4% area, still a ways to go. And with that, the markets, we anticipate more volatility and definitely more uncertainty. And the markets don't, don't like uncertainty. It likes transparency and being able to forecast into the future. So uncertainty leads to additional volatility in the market. So we're, we're telling our clients at this point in time to be very patient and, and to be very, very discerning with their investments. Um, take risk off the table and only go with high quality investments at this point in time. Okay. So definitely trying to, for, for you, trying to avoid risk right now. I actually want to bounce something off you. Bank of America out with some new data on portfolio balancing. Now, according to their data, the average portfolio is now 52.7% equities, just a tick lower than March of 2009. Of course, that's following the great financial crisis, but also right before historic bull run in the markets. You can see the data right here for the people listening. Uh, today at 52.7, March 2009, 53.1% percentage of equities in the average portfolio. What do you think about this? Is this close to the way that you're balancing as well? Um, it's a little aggressive for our for our taste at this point. Um, we're, we're much more conservative. We're we're ranging. We customize all of our clients' accounts, so um, I have to keep things in a, in a broad and general um, scope. But we're we're our investment committee is is basically prescribing somewhere between thirty and thirty five percent in equities, especially after the tremendous first quarter um, results that that you know that we've all experienced in the market with the S and P up seven percent, Nasdaq gosh, almost 17 percent um, in one quarter that those are heroic. And those are those are definitely returns that we haven't seen since, you know, since the, the middle of the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. 
Um, interesting that you brought up the, the you know one of the key data points uh-huh. um, pointing to asset allocation of 2009. One of the things that we're concerned about um, is the lack of credit um, and really what we're calling the credit crunch. Um, you're seeing small businesses only about 25 percent saying that they have access to the lending that they need in order to continue to operate. Now that may not resonate with very many people, but to give you an understanding of that, that's 10% lower than it was in the middle of the financial crisis of 2008. So it's very, very low. And so, and so the, the credit issue is the issue that we're really kind of watching and concerned about uh, a potential contagion. So tightening credit, certainly something to watch. I want to get to where you're bullish right now. You're bullish on aerospace and defense. That makes sense because I know you're trying to take risk off the table. Obviously, a lot of spending on that. But you're also very bullish on artificial intelligence. Give us a sense of how you invest in that. And do you believe that the run-ups already happened and if you're jumping in now, you're getting in late? Or do you think there's more upside? I do think uh, on a... I, I think on a longer term perspective, so for longer term investors, there still a, remains a play in artificial intelligence. But on a shorter term basis, I would look for market consolidation, which we anticipate having some of that with the volatility in, in second quarter and pos- possibly in the later second half of the year to then go in and purchase longer term positions um, in, in AI. All right. Kalei Kadena Pua'a, great to have you here as always. Thanks for being here. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, a short seller has a red-hot AI stock in its crosshairs, alleging some accounting irregularities. We have the full story and your morning mystery chart revealed right after this. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis. Hi, Frank. Good morning. The Wall Street Journal gave an update on Evan Gershkovich, their reporter who was arrested last week on, in Russia on spying allegations. Editor-in-chief Emma Tucker told the paper's staff that lawyers for Gershkovich visited him for the first time on Tuesday. Tucker added that he is in good health and is grateful for the support he's received following his arrest. Russian officials say that Gershkovich was arrested on suspicion of espionage in the interests of the American government. The Wall Street Journal continues to deny these charges against him. The city of Chicago went to the polls on Tuesday and elected vocal progressive Brandon Johnson as their new mayor. NBC News projects that Johnson, a former teacher and Cook County commissioner, will defeat fellow Democratic challenger Paul Vias. Vias ran ahead of both Johnson and Mayor Lori Lightfoot in the initial round of voting in February, but fell to Johnson, who ran on a message of addressing racial and economic disparities in Tuesday's runoff. For the first time in 15 years, liberal judges will gain control of the state's highest court. NBC News projects that Janet Protasewicz has won a seat on Wisconsin's Supreme Court, defeating her conservative opponent, Daniel Kelly. With more than $42 million spent, this becomes the most expensive court race in U.S. history, and the stakes were high. The new liberal majority will likely determine the future of abortion access in the state and could be needed to weigh in on election rules for 2024. Frank, we send it back to you with those headlines for the day. All right, Francis Rivera, thank you very much. Straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, OPEC surprise output cuts, sending crude prices to their highest in months. But is it enough to shift U.S. producers into high gear? We speak with one of those producers next. And a programming note, be sure to sign up for today's CNBC Pro Talks event featuring Joe Terranova. That's at 1.15 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to cnbc.com slash pro slash talks for more info. Our Bob Pisani hosting this one. 
Worldwide Exchange. We'll be right back. It is right around 5.30 a.m. in here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck, looking to get back on track. Stocks seeking gains after the Dow and the S&P snap four-day win streaks as investors digest fresh Fed comments on a potential rate pivot. And leaving its legal troubles behind, shares of Johnson & Johnson, they're popping this morning after it proposes ramping up its multi-billion dollar settlement over cancer claims around its talcum powder. And a historic visit by Taiwan's president set to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. A sit-down likely to further anger China. We are live in Beijing with the latest reaction. It is Wednesday, April the 5th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Collins. Pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. Looking right now, uh, right across the board, down fractionally. Not much change from, the, from when we started the show at 5 a.m. this morning. Um, this, after all three major indices fell by just about a half a percent yesterday. Investors digesting fresh comments from Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, saying the central bank likely has more rate hikes ahead, even amid signs the recent banking crisis has been contained. Speaking in New York last night, Mester says it could take until 2025 to get inflation down to the Fed's 2% target due to continued inflation pressures. Precisely how much higher the Fed funds rate will need to go from here and for how long policy will need to remain restrictive will depend on how much inflation and inflation expectations are moving down. And we'll get our next read on inflation on April 12th. But on the back of those Mester comments, we want to get a check on the bond market this morning. Looking right now at the benchmark 10-year at 3.37, falling about 10 basis points from where it started the week and, of course, the second quarter, only a few days in. The real story here is the the yield on the two-year note now below 4%. A lot of people attributing that JOLTS report that showed job openings falling below 10 million for the first time in a long time. All right. We also want to hit oil hovering near its highest level since January. Right now, we're seeing WTI still above 80 bucks a barrel down fractionally this morning. Brent crude at almost $85 a barrel, also down fractionally this morning. And coming up later on the show, we're going to speak exclusively with one U.S. crude producer on this recent spike, OPEC's decision to slash output and how it's impacting his business and the outlook for U.S. energy. All right. Time now to get a check on the overnight action in Asia and the early trade over in Europe. Our Arabile Goumede is standing by in our London newsroom with much more on both. Good morning, Arabile. Yeah, good morning then, Frank. So very quickly, Asia did indeed uh, look to find some sense of positivity, but it was a fairly mixed picture uh, when one takes a look at how things fared out on that front. Even out in Europe, we're seeing a fairly mixed picture. There's a focus on banks as well, plus the news you've just touched on with regards to that oil, uh, oil cut, then oil uh, supply cut, then coming out of OPEC. That's still filtering through into the market. A little bit more focus as well on inflation and where the economies are going out in Europe is going to be a key factor as well for the remainder of the week as well. Quickly, let's take a look then at what else is happening across the board. As I touched on in uh, Asia, still very important. The uh, Reserve Bank of New Zealand surprising markets then this morning, hiking rates by 50 basis points. It's the 11th consecutive move higher since New Zealand's uh, central bank started raising rates in October 2021. Interest rates now sitting at uh, their highest level in 14 years at 5.25%. In other news, Foxconn has reported over $13 billion in revenue for the first quarter, up 3.9% year-on-year. But the major Apple supplier says sales are expected 
to fall this quarter on both an annual and quarterly basis, given the electronic makers seasonally, unseasonally strong results last year. Of course, the AGM out uh, as well for UBS is currently happening. We are continuing to set key focus on that. Major moves, but the CEO as well as the chairman say it's going to be a Herculean task to put the merger together. All right, Arabile Goumide, live in London. Arabile, thank you very much. Time now for a check on this morning's top stories, including the world's largest retailer staying firm with its first quarter outlook. And we welcome back Savannah Hanau with that story. Good morning again, Savannah. Good morning again, Frank. Well, Frank, Walmart is holding on steady to its sales forecast for the first quarter ahead of its investor day meeting today. The company reiterating its outlook for both that period and the rest of the year. Now, in February, Walmart said it expects adjusted earnings of $1.25 to $1.30 a share for the first three months of the year. President Biden is calling on tech companies to make sure their endeavors in artificial intelligence are safe, adding it remains to be seen whether the new technology is dangerous. The president making those remarks yesterday during a meeting of his science and technology advisors, which includes executives from Microsoft and Google. He added that while AI could help in addressing disease and climate change, it's important to address possible risks around national security and the economy. And sticking with AI, shares of C3 AI set to extend its losses after falling 26% yesterday, following a letter to the company's auditors from the short-selling firm Carisdale Capital. Carisdale is accusing C3 AI of accounting irregularities, including that it is overstating revenue and margins. On Closing Bell Overtime yesterday, Carisdale's CEO elaborated on his firm's allegations. At the end of the day, what C3A is trying to do is they're trying to demonstrate high gross margins and demonstrate high subscription revenue, despite the fact that it's not really a software business. It's a consulting business. And unfortunately, their consulting product are just not getting much traction within the customer base. And there's just a lot of creativity that C3A is using in order to inflate its income statement metrics uh, to try to keep this valuation prop at $5 billion, which is ridiculously overvalued. And Frank, C3AI has denied any wrongdoing and says that it's Carisdale that's misconstruing its financial um, filings. Yeah, certainly a story to watch. Looking at C3AI stock right now, down 4% 4 in the pre-market. All right, Savannah now. Thank you very much. got it. All right, now to a developing story. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy set to meet with Taiwan's president as part of a bipartisan sit-down today. The historic meeting rattling relations between the U.S. and China even further with Beijing launching military drills near Taiwan ahead of that gathering. Yunus Yun now joins us from Beijing with much more on the reaction by leaders there. Yunus. Thanks, Frank. Well, meeting McCarthy will be the most politically sensitive part of President Tsai Ing-wen's 10-day tour outside of Taiwan. Uh, both sides have confirmed that President Tsai, on her way back from Central America, will be hosted by the speaker at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library near Los Angeles. She will meet with a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers, similar to an earlier stopover in New York City. And her meeting with McCarthy will make her the first Taiwan leader to meet a House speaker on U.S. soil since 1979, uh, when the U.S. switched diplomatic ties uh, to Beijing. Now, China, which claims Taiwan as its own, has reacted badly, as one would expect, um, uh, saying that there would be uh, countermeasures, uh, resolute ones, for what it describes as, as size sneaky transit 
through the U.S. Now, when former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had defied Beijing visiting Taiwan last summer, uh, Beijing had launched a week-long live fire drill as well as a blockade of the island, which eventually resulted in a ballistic missile fired into Japan's economic zone. Uh, So far, we haven't seen um, action that is that aggressive. Uh, Today, the military, though, the Chinese military, announced a, quote, special operation in the central and northern Taiwan Straits. Now, despite the rhetoric, uh, the indications are that um, all sides, including Beijing, will exercise more restraint. Frank? So, Eunice, another uh, key meeting that we're monitoring this morning, French President Emmanuel Macron landing in China earlier this morning for his three-day visit and some face-to-face time with Xi Jinping. Do you know what's on the agenda and what he hopes to accomplish with this meeting? Well, from uh, uh, the French president's office, uh, they've said, the officials there have said that he's hoping to have discussions about Ukraine, um, potentially uh, trying to enlist uh, President Xi's help in um, alleviating the, the, the crisis in Ukraine. However, uh, trade is also, and business is also on the agenda. What's also interesting about uh, the French president and the EU chief's visit this week is the way that it factors in to Beijing's apparent restraint when it comes to Taiwan. Of course, anything could happen, but at the same time, it looks as though uh, Beijing is considering that uh, the French president is here. Uh, They want to have cozier relationships uh, with uh, the EU uh, countries, especially in light of the tensions between the U.S. and China. And another big push by the Chinese is to get more foreign investment, including U.S. investment, into the country. So uh, those are part of the calculations right now for Beijing as it casts its weary eye toward Tsai's visit in the United States. All right, Eunice Yoon, live in Beijing. Eunice, thank you very much. Turning now to your morning's big money mover and one of our top stories, shares of Johnson & Johnson are higher in the pre-market. The company proposing to pay nearly $9 billion to settle claims as talk products cause cancer, more than quadrupling the amount it previously offered. Our senior health reporter, Meg Terrell, joins us now on the CNBC Newsline with much more on this story. Good morning, Meg. Good morning, Frank. So J&J was facing thousands of these talc-related lawsuits, and it had tried to do this sort of creative legal maneuver where it split off these liabilities into a separate company and then filed that company for bankruptcy. But an appeals court tossed that out. They had been funding that with $2 billion uh, worth of sort of trying to settle these claims. So now that they lost that uh, attempt, they have come back and they've increased the settlement proposal now to $8.9 billion, and they are refunding filing this unit for bankruptcy and trying to bring this through. So this goes from $2 billion to almost $9 billion. They say they've got the support from 60,000 claimants here, and uh, they need 75% of claimants to sort of approve this. Uh, My understanding is they have something like 100,000 total, so they still need to get there. You know, as part of this, J&J is still saying that it believes these claims are, quote, specious and lack scientific merit. They say, though, that resolving these cases in the tort system would take decades and impose significant costs on LTL, which is that company, and the system, with most claimants never receiving any compensation. Uh, So they are now trying this again with a lot more money, and the market obviously is responding to this. It was up 3% in the after hours yesterday, uh, thinking that this is finally going to put this to bed for J&J. Frank? Yeah, Meg, uh, still up 3% in the pre-market right now. So it looks like the market is supporting this deal, but is it a done deal, or is it possible this new settlement doesn't make it past the judge? 
Yeah, it definitely has some hurdles to cross. Wells Fargo came out with a note last night saying it, their legal expert gives it 50-50 chance of, of succeeding because, you know, there are still legal questions. Does this really constitute all of the reasons for filing something for bankruptcy in good faith? But certainly it is a much higher offer. Many plaintiffs are on board with it, but some plaintiffs aren't. So we'll have to see where the vote goes and then how the courts view it as well, Frank. Yeah, really a high profile case here. Our Meg Terrell. Meg, thank you very much. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the ripple effects of OPEC's major production cut this week and what it may mean for the U.S. oil and gas industry. We speak with the CEO of One Energy Company coming up right here on Worldwide Exchange. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. OPEC surprise output cut sending crude prices to their highest level since January. But closer to home, is this week's more than 11% pop to more than 80 bucks a barrel enough to kick U.S. production into high gear? Joining me now is Robert Anderson, president and CEO at Earthstone Energy, a Texas-based upstream operator running five rigs, producing 100,000 barrels of oil per day from the Permian Basin. Robert, great to have you here. Good morning. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Appreciate uh, being here this morning. All right. So we just talked about that big uh, spike when it comes to oil prices. I just want to get your reaction as a U.S. producer. When you heard about those surprise OPEC cuts, what did you think? What did it mean for your business? Well, we've had a pretty volatile uh, time here in the last few weeks, uh, seeing oil prices in the, in the low 60s and now jumping up into the 80s. So I think we are pretty re- refreshing to see it at, at $80 oil, given where service costs are. There's a in the low 60s, there was a misalignment between service costs and uh, commodity prices. And where we are today feels a lot better uh, in terms of that alignment between costs and uh, our ability to go out and execute our programs at reasonable economic rates. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased to see oil in the 80s. All right. I want to spell this out for the audience. When you say service costs, you're talking about the cost to produce, uh, transport, store, all those kind of things? The cost to drill and complete wells and bring new wells into production to actually increase our production volumes from where they stand today going forward. All right. Obviously, a very CapEx intensive business. So when it comes to oil prices, is there a bit of a sweet spot? Is there a range where it's profitable for you and it's also worthwhile to put some CapEx money into drilling more? Absolutely. We're, we're at that range right now at oil at $80 oil. We feel pretty good about what the economics look like in our drilling programs. When you get into the lower 60s, and you have uh, commodity prices there and you have service costs that are much higher than what that can support, then our economics are lower and we're not going to produce as much oil. We're going to cut back on activity. You're seeing some of that right now related to the gas areas with gas being so low and service costs being uh, much higher than what they can support. All right. We talked a little bit about the macro impact of OPEC and their production cuts. I also want to talk about something closer to home. When the United States decided not to refill the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, what did that mean for your business and what does it mean long term? Well, when oil prices are high, it's probably not the right time to fill up the reserve. Um, And so maybe we got to sit back and wait till oil prices uh, subside some. uh, And then you may not have that demand uh, or the supply, the ability to be able to fill up the SPR because everybody's trying to sell their product as much as they can, or they're going to slow down if oil prices are lower. So it's a balance that the government has to take into account when uh, oil prices are this volatile. And uh, I'm afraid that it's going to continue being a challenge for the government to figure out the right time to fill up the SPR. 
All right, using the word volatile. So what does that volatility mean for your business? This is obviously, again, a very CapEx intensive business. When you see all this volatility, what does it take for you to feel confident to make the investments to ramp up production? I think a lot of people, you know, who just watch say, hey, oil prices are up. Why don't you ramp up? Yeah, it's, it's not that easy. First of all, we have the service industry that we need to make sure can keep up with the activity level. And when oil prices are higher and we're pretty much full on the service side and we can't find new laborers to help uh, in our fields uh, execute on those plans, it makes it difficult. So for us, I think the uh, where we are right now is probably at pretty close to max capacity uh, in the Permian Basin with activity levels. If we were trying to dr- increase that activity level, um, we would need uh, the ability to get permits quicker in, in where we have federal acreage. Uh, we need the ability to get pipelines into the ground quicker to get uh, so we could get those wells online sooner. Uh, and we'd also probably need a view that oil prices aren't going to be cut anytime soon uh, to a bigger degree than, uh, you know, in the 70 to $80 range that we're, we're confident that they'll stay in that range. Um, but it's a very uh, manpower, capital intensive business, like you said, and we need the service companies. Uh, and so to ramp up production, um, we're, we're, like I said, we're pretty much at full capacity today with the activity level we've got. All right. So, you know, my last question, prices right now, we're seeing WTI at about $80 and 60 cents a barrel. Where do you see it going from here? You obviously have a lot of visibility, not only into to demand, but also production. Yeah, the, the demand, not only in the United States, but around the world is going to uh, probably somewhat dictate uh, where oil prices go. Uh, the Saudis always obviously feel that at this level, it's a floor that they're requiring for their own needs. Uh, we feel pretty good about um, the future it, at $80 oil. So I'm not going to forecast where oil prices are going. I'm going to try and run my business um, to create um, profitable growth in almost any environment. But surely um, 70, 80, $90 oil in that band, uh, we uh, are very confident about our ability to, uh, to uh, profitably grow our business. Yeah. Again, right now, uh, WTI at about 80 bucks a barrel. So I want to hit on something else you mentioned. So you mentioned you're pretty much at max capacity. And to ramp up, it would take investment in some other time. But some of your peers, they may not be at max capacity. So right now, as an oil producer, do you look at your oil production as a factor in inflation? Is that something that you think about? Is that something you and your peers think about? Uh, not really. I think, I think one of the demands that we have on us is that investors are requiring us to, uh, to return capital or to shareholders in some form. And uh, as, as that uh, is imposed on us as producers, then we're going to have to live within cash flow or, or, or provide some free cash flow back to the shareholders. So that drives some of our thinking as well in terms of uh, our being at max capacity, that we're not going to increase activity levels just because oil went to $80. All right. Robert Anderson from Earthstone Energy, really great to have you here. Appreciate your insight coming to us straight from the oil patch. We appreciate it. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, G-Squared Private Wealth's Victoria Green on why she's remaining cautiously optimistic on these markets and the streaming name that's higher on our radar. Worldwide Exchange, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for what we like to call your WEX wrap-up, six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 o'clock hour. We begin with UBS holding its annual shareholder meeting right now with reappointed CEO Sergio Armati at the helm starting today. The meeting follows Credit Suisse's final shareholder meeting yesterday. 
Also in Europe, a regulator says the U.K. cloud market needs a competition probe after uncovering practices that make it more difficult to switch and use multiple cloud suppliers. The country's cloud market is currently dominated by Amazon, Microsoft and Google. Back here in the U.S., Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says the central bank likely has more interest rate increases ahead and that she sees monetary policy moving further into restrictive territory this year with the Fed funds rate moving above 5 percent. Apple's Tim Cook and Disney's Bob Iger among the tech and media executives meeting with the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party today to discuss those industries, large market and supply chain resources in China. LVMH CEO Bernard Arnault of France dethroning Elon Musk as the world's richest person with a fortune of $211 billion. Arnault had previously been number three on that list behind Musk and Amazon's Jeff Bezos. And some Starbucks customers not taken to the company's new olive oil infused coffee, saying it causes uh, stomach distress and makes them sick, with one Starbucks employee calling attention to that issue online. All right, we're gearing up for the trading day ahead, a slew of economic data on tap. That includes weekly mortgage applications and numbers for March on, from ADP on jobs, as well as PMI and ISM with snapshots of the services sector. We also get earnings from ConAgra and updates from Walmart's investment community meeting, as well as Costco sales numbers. Today's ADP data, the latest piece of employment data leading up to the monthly jobs report on Friday. A new note from J.P. Morgan calling for 200,000 in payroll gains after this week's JOLTS report showed a 6% decline in job openings, its lowest level since May of 2021. The data showing potential signs of a labor market cool down, but is it enough for the Fed to pause in its rate hiking campaign? And for my next guest to remain what she calls cautiously bullish, Victoria Green is G-Square Private Wealth's founding partner and chief investment officer, as well as a CNBC contributor. And Vicky, you're joining me right now. So explain this to me. Explain cautiously bullish to me. What are you cautious about and what are you bullish about? Well, I think with the data coming in a little bit lighter recently, we are we are bullish that the Fed is going to pause after this rate hike. It's about 50-50 if they actually will hike in May. But you've seen between jolts and, and uh, manufacturing coming in, just a generally weak economic data that can support this pause. So we are cautious, cautiously bullish. We might see this 10-year is wavering. And if the 10-year breaks lower, then we see stocks able to move a little bit higher, especially the growth in the tech stocks. But we are ready to pull the ripcord if this data goes the other direction. We hit that 4,200. We stall out at these other resistances we see in the markets. You got to be ready to get a little defensive as well. So you need to be tactical right now, Frank. All right. So how are you being tactical? We obviously have earnings season coming up next week. Um, So far this year, only two days into the quarter, obviously small sample size, but the NASDAQ in the red. What are you expecting from earnings season, specifically mega cap tech that really led the way in the first quarter? Sure. And, and mega cap, I think it was a safety for a lot of investors. They had strong balance sheets. They're known. They're a little bit less interest rate sensitive. And if, if the Fed does pause, then they're fighting a little bit less of an economic headwind with higher rates. I think generally we're, we're looking for a little bit of weakness in financials and energy, uh, even though they're very reasonably valued. If you look at PEs, those are the two cheapest sectors in the market. I think they're cheap for a reason. Financials are facing a lot of headwinds right now. I don't think that every bank is going under at all. I think there's a lot of quality banks, but between regulatory headwinds that are coming. Everybody knows whenever there's a crisis, there's going to be more regulation, as well as they're they're doing less deals and, and you're seeing less loan making. So I think you're just looking at hard headwinds as well as probably pretty light guidance from financials. I think it's going to be mixed. This isn't a rising tide lifts all boats type of market. You need to be selective. You need to be focused on quality and you need to be focused on sustaining cash flows and sustained growth in these companies. 
Bank of America out with some new data on portfolio balancing. Now, this is according to Bank of America data. Uh, the average portfolio currently is 52.7% equities, and that's just a tick lower than March of 2009. That's, of course, following the great financial crisis, but also right before a historic bull run in the markets. What do you make of this sentiment when it comes to equities and portfolios? I think the sentiment actually is very bullish for equities right now because you have a ton of cash on the sidelines as well as equity sentiment and holdings is a little bit lower than, than the historical average. A lot of cash in money markets. I think it's over $5 trillion. We're peaking about the same places we peaked in March 2009 as well as in 2020. This flight to safety, flight to, to cash with the attractive yields that it has is typically a contrarian bull buy signal. So, Vic, I want to get to our mystery chart. You are bullish on Netflix. We showed the chart a little bit ago. You're also bullish on two other consumer names, Dick's Sporting Goods and Constellation Brands. Give us the thesis on Netflix first, and hopefully we have time for the other two. Sure. Netflix is seeing a lot of success with their uh, crackdown on password sharing. They're walking this tight line between not alienating people and getting hated on the Internet, but also increasing revenues. They estimated there was 100 million subscribers that are password sharing. And, and, and preliminary data from third parties is showing success in Canada where they rolled out this crackdown on password sharing, driving people either to pay more on the primary profile or people picking up either the app supported tier or a brand new uh, platform access. So it's a great revenue drive. And, you know, who doesn't like their tilt into true crime? I mean, some of their top rated shows recently have been leading into this true crime and it's been very, very successful. The Murdoch murders. I don't know anybody that didn't watch that series. I didn't watch it, but I'm going to check it out on your recommendation. What? Victoria Green. <laughs> great to have you here as always. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.